This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. At the westernmost point where the United States meets Mexico, there is a beach. Or more accurately, there was a beach. It was a beach when the Kumeyaay the indigenous Native American tribe called the land home. It was a beach as the pioneers and settlers, cowboys and industrialists arrived. And it remained a beach up until the mid 19th century when an invisible line was drawn across its beige sand and into the sea. Now it's two beaches, Playas de Tijuana to the south and Imperial Beach to the north. For Eldon Kidd, it was still just one beach. But at this moment, on an otherwise unremarkable night in the late 90s, Eldon had no choice but to accept it as two. Only a few years prior, all that separated the two sides was a thin cable. But now, a corrugated steel fence rose from the sand, slicing the beach in two like a rusty old razor blade. These days, the crossings were getting more dangerous. I would always try to wait for one of those times where it was foggy, always wait and take advantage of rain. It was so black and dark that you cannot see, especially with the fog. So you just keep the noise of the waves to your right. If they start to fade, you're too far out. If they get too loud, you're too close in. The plan was to swim from Tijuana Beach in Mexico to Imperial Beach in the United States far beyond the border fence, so as to evade detection. The journey could take five hours, but the currents were in Eldon's favor, guiding him northward along the coast. It would have been a simple task for Eldon alone. He was in his 30s, 6'5", 220 pounds, a towering brick wall of a man. He had the physique of an amateur bodybuilder and the stamina of a wild Mustang. However, Eldon wouldn't be swimming alone that night. Along for the journey were two young boys whose families had entrusted Eldon with the task of passing them safely from Mexico into the United States. I took them to Tijuana Beach at night, double wetsuit, Vaseline on the face to protect from salt, black life jacket, and duck decoys cut out so that it would appear from the shore that they were just floating ducks in the ocean. The new citizen would be prone on a boogie board painted black, and I would pull them with a shoulder 
harness, something like a lifeguard would use. We would swim to arrive at daybreak at Imperial Beach and retrieved previously buried dry clothes, change out, go to the hotel, rest and get warm, and then drive to Los Angeles. Eldon was confident he could pull it off. But what he didn't know was that the two young boys had never been in the ocean before. And in the pitch darkness, the sea could manifest as a ferocious and ominous beast to a pair of young and weary travelers. Eldon could tell the boys were nervous, and he did his best to calm them. In those moments before the swim, looking at their young faces, Eldon couldn't help but think of his own family, his own children. After all, they were the reason for all of this. He checked the time. The tides would be turning, heading out now. And that meant it was time to go. Everything was going according to plan as Eldon and the two boys began their journey. But about an hour in, fear took hold. As we were rounding the corner, the boys began to cry and yell and cuss. Even in the darkness, Eldon could make out the distant fence near the shore. They were almost across. If he could just swim a little harder, a little faster. It attracted the attention of some policemen that were on the shore. But he wouldn't get there in time. Not before the first shots rang out. This is American Coyote. In our first episode, We'll meet Eldon Kidd, a Southern California beach boy who followed an unlikely path to become one of the border's most notorious coyotes of the 20th century. My name is Andrea Lopez Villafaña, and I'm a journalist for the San Diego Union-Tribune. On the job, I've heard a lot of stories. Stories about San Diego, about its culture, about the border— and the story I'm about to tell you, the story of Eldon Kidd, it's one of the most remarkable stories I've ever heard. For as long as there's been borders, the practice of smuggling people has existed. But few know that the story of America would be drastically different if not for people smuggling. In 1808, just over 50 years before the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, Congress banned the further importation of Africans for enslavement in America. But the importation never really stopped, and massive violations of the law brought in wave after wave of new slaves. After the Civil War, then-President Chester A. Arthur signed the Chinese Exclusion Act, meant to curb the influx of Chinese laborers coming to America. But American businesses relied heavily on the cheap labor and so Chinese immigrants were smuggled into the country, through Canada and up through Mexico. Those enterprising individuals who smuggled Chinese migrants over the U.S.-Mexico border in the late 19th century were the very first coyotes, 
a more familiar modern slang given to these people smugglers along the southern border. One, three, seven, seven, well. The administration and the allies of immigration reform on both sides of the Capitol and both sides of the aisle work together to accomplish these critically important reforms to control illegal immigration. That's why our administration has moved aggressively to secure our borders more, by hiring a record number of new border guards, by deporting twice as many criminal aliens as ever before. My point to you is, is we've been through this kind of uh, period of isolationism, protectionism, nativism. I'm a little concerned that we may be going through the same period. Today, the topic has been highly politicized. And as the U.S.-Mexico border has become harder to cross, the services of coyotes are in high demand. According to a Time magazine report from 2003, the annual profit of these coyotes working the U.S.-Mexico border alone is estimated to be about $5 billion. Imagine how it has grown since. Back then, the cost across the border per person was around $1,500. Today, it has more than tripled to $5,000 per person with little guarantees of safety. And as is the case with most illicit trades, the profession is fraught with bad actors, sex traffickers, drug smugglers, and cartels. Coyotes often make news for the abuse and death of people desperate for a better life in America when their attempts to maximize their profits go awry. The death toll has risen after Texas authorities responded to a horrific scene. Eight undocumented immigrants were found dead inside a tractor trailer. But there are exceptions to the rule. I do believe that there are a few coyotes who conduct business the way that I tried to do. You do flip a coin, but there's many of them that quietly and respectfully do their work as well. This story is about an exception to the rule about a man whose reputation earned him the trust and faith of over a thousand migrants in search of a new life. And a man whose size and stature has made him a legend to the people and the families of those people who he has crossed. Yet, his legend remains unknown beyond the border towns on both sides of the U.S.-Mexico divide. Speed? Uh, Elder Interview, American Coyote, Mark. How are you, man? Good. Good. All right, so these are all follow-up questions. As a coyote, Elden Kid has endured the full spectrum of human experience, from the brightest days to the darkest. And then there were those years that were so dark, Elden would spend the rest of his life trying to forget they ever happened. But long before all of that, before the night of that fateful swim, before all the illegal border crossings, Elden Kid was just that, a kid living the good life in Southern California. I was born in Glendale, California, raised in Huntington Beach, California, I actually have no excuse for my errant ways. I was born to a very good family. My father, salt-of-the-earth type, mechanic for the city of Huntington Beach, and my mother, a classic 60s, 70s homemaker. I had every advantage that anyone could have growing up, although we were a little bit on the uh, 
challenged budget side of things. Despite some financial challenges, and there were more than a few in a household of three children, the home Elton grew up in was a safe place, warm and inviting, and that offer to feel safe within its walls extended well beyond his immediate family. My house was kind of known as a, a little bit of a halfway house. If a, a neighbor was having problems with a spouse or transient from out of town, our house was a little bit like a hotel. We had a small house, about 1,200 square feet, but I would wake up often and see people that I did not know sleeping on the couch or maybe even a tent in the backyard. This good neighbor policy could be traced in part back to the family's faith. They were Mormons and devout believers in the Church of Latter-day Saints. Like a lot of kids raised in a religious household, Elton didn't think much of it during his childhood. It was just the way it was. And so he too was a devout believer, attending church, reading his Bible front to back, and doing his best to exemplify the pillars of the faith. So despite his large size throughout his life, Eldon was raised to be a gentle giant. I was always pretty much the biggest kid in the class, but my religious beliefs at the time were that if I misused my strength to bully or hurt someone who was innocent, that that would be instantly taken away from me. And um, I think it was absolutely from my father, who was also a big, strong man. I remember in uh, the late 60s that he defended one of the lifeguards where he worked, who was not out of the closet, but everybody knew that he was in the closet. And it was so very unpopular at the time. And I remember my father standing up for him and saving his job and that man coming to the house and saying how thankful he was. And I was there to witness that. And I just admired my father for championing his cause. Of course, it wasn't all family and religion for Eldon. Due to his natural size and strength, Eldon was a star athlete, most notably in football. He also loved the outdoors, quickly becoming a well-decorated Boy Scout. But when it came to education, let's just say Eldon was a little less than focused, often choosing a day at the beach over a day in the classroom. This decision came at a cost, an important life lesson in and of itself. It was popular back in the day, corporal punishment. And the standard punishment for me going to the beach and missing a day of school was five swats. And I would calculate and I would look at my bike and look at my fishing pole and often make the wrong choice and go to school. But once in a while, I'd make the right choice and go to the beach. But Eldon's early instincts to buck the status quo and bend or break the rules for his own enjoyment turned him into a constant target for authority figures. And soon, the punishment became a regular and very public display. I met Eldon on the first day of fourth grade. In our classroom, the teacher had put the boys on one side of the class and the girls on the other side of the class. And there was Eldon 
smiling at me with his bright teeth and the twinkle in his eye. That's Kathy Nordgren, a classmate and friend of Eldon's from back in the day. She too remembers Eldon ending up on the receiving end of a teacher's paddle more than once. He would annoy the teachers, especially a teacher named Mr. Duval. He was brutal. Mr. Duval would put Eldon in front of the class, order him to grab his ankles, bending over, and he would use this paddle and hit Eldon multiple times. Eldon never wavered, but after Mr. Duval was done, Eldon would stand up and just go sit in his seat. Eldon remembers Mr. Duval as well. On one occasion, I went to school and there were BB holes shot in the school window, which I did not do. And the teacher paddled me for that. And I think that's the first time that I felt injustice. These experiences also helped to mold how Eldon would deal with authority moving forward. After that unjust paddling, I vowed to get that paddle. And I planned and I watched and waited until the right time and I threw my coat over it and took it home. And I still have it to this day. Across the street from our elementary school, there was an apartment building that had a swimming pool and the pool was surrounded by chain link fence. It was on Eldon's way home from school that he witnessed a small child falling into that swimming pool. The child had no supervision and Eldon hopped this tall fence, jumped into the pool, the child was at the bottom of the pool, and Eldon saved that child from drowning. This moment, saving a neighbor from drowning, was one of the first where Eldon Kidd would feel like a true hero. He didn't know it at the time, but that feeling would be when he'd chase for his entire life. After this moment of heroism, Kathy began to see Eldon in a new light and their relationship took on a certain significance. Eldon would give her small gifts, a necklace and a pearl ring for her birthday one year, a pet lizard for another, and he'd insist on walking home with her from school. He always rode his bicycle, and so he would just walk alongside his bike and walk me home from school. But it was always just a special friendship. And soon... Kathy was spending her afternoons at Eldon's. The first time I went to his house, he had already had this established bird community. He was very gentle and caring. These animals, they were loved by him. He didn't just have them in cages or a box for fun or mistreatment. He truly loved them. It still matches him and his love for people and animals and only wanting to do good. Their special friendship had all the trappings of young love, but their particular case remained undiagnosed in those early years. Unfortunately, 
fate wasn't on their side. And soon, Kathy's family moved out of town. It was sudden, and not without its lasting trauma. I was in denial that it was going to happen. So I didn't say goodbye to any of my friends. My dad carried me and stuffed me into the car. I'm kicking and screaming and crying. Eldon and I never had a goodbye. And I did not see him until we went down there to visit. With Kathy's family in town to house it for the summer, the two young lovebirds reconnected. Eldon wasted no time asking his childhood crush on a proper date. He took me to Knott's Berry Farm, the restaurant there. I just remember talking and laughing as if no time had passed. But this was a little bit different. We both had our hormones and I remember sitting next to him in the truck and just loving every minute of it. He drove to some street near Huntington Beach Pier, which ended up in a lot of kissing. Oh, and he accidentally called me by his future wife's name. Well, that sent up the red flag that he had another girl, but I also had a long-term boyfriend at the same time. But Eldon way outshined him in my eyes. As Kathy discovered in her time away, Eldon had already met the love of his life, Janice Young, a woman he would go on to marry and have children with. But even decades later, long after that magical evening together, Kathy still remembers Eldon fondly. He was always just looking to make people laugh or have an adventure or discover something. And I envy that. And if I could turn back the clock, uh, I would have hoped I would have been the one to have married him. I would have gone on his adventures as well. By the time Eldon graduated high school, he was on a path he could potentially follow for the rest of his life. But as we'll learn over the course of this series, Eldon Kitt's life was marked by unpredictability. A series of life-changing events in the coming years would cause him to stray far from that path and never look back. Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about 
how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. Mormonism was right for me at the right time. Drugs were rampant in the 70s. It kept me away from that. It gives you a a group, a tribe, friends. And I did feel an obligation to go on to the two-year mission. It's just something that's expected of you. With the restoration of his church in the latter days, the Lord commanded his servants to preach the gospel to all nations, kindreds, tongues, and people. Each year, Mormons are sent on missions all over the world to perform humanitarian work and proselytize on behalf of their faith. Most missionaries are young adults, traveling thousands of miles away from home to places where the church believes the Word of God is needed. Supposedly by divine inspiration, they decide where you should go. I later find out that they just put a blindfold on and throw a dart at a world map. Unfortunately for Eldon, the mission he was assigned would bring him to one of the most dangerous regions in the world in the 1970s, Northern Ireland. At 19, living pretty much a sheltered life in many ways, never been out of the country. I had two suits, a suitcase, uh, got on the plane, went to Belfast, Ireland, during the height of the Troubles. While it's impossible to distill the complexity of this time and place into a short history lesson, here are the basics. The Troubles refers to a three-decade-long conflict around the constitutional status of Northern Ireland, fought between two religious groups. On one side were the Unionists, primarily Protestants who wanted to remain a part of the UK. On the other side were nationalists, primarily Irish Catholics, who wanted to leave the UK and join the rest of Ireland as one united nation. In the late 60s, protests began to shine a light on the discrimination taking place against Catholics in the region, and the primarily Protestant government responded with organized police brutality. Here in Belfast, the situation is worse than ever. Four people were killed here last night, one of them a nine-year-old boy, in a four-hour machine gun fight between the police and the people. Tensions increased, and soon the British army was brought in to end the escalating conflict. It seems now that only British troops can bring even a temporary peace to Northern Ireland. They came well-armed, well-trained, and they quickly sealed off the Catholic ghetto called Bogside to keep the Catholics in and the Protestants out. But their presence and their loyalty to the Unionist side only emboldened the Irish nationalists, who formed their own, now infamous, paramilitary forces. The powder keg was primed to explode, and the fuse was Bloody Sunday. Inside St. Mary's Church, there was room for only 1,500 of the more than 20,000 mourners. The mood was somber, an atmosphere of deeply felt grief. The coffins held the bodies of men shot by British soldiers Sunday. On January 30th, 1972, 26 unarmed protesters were shot by soldiers in the British Army. 
plunging the region into conflict for the next 26 years. Two years after Bloody Sunday, a wide-eyed, optimistic young Mormon from Southern California would arrive in Northern Ireland on a mission to preach the gospel. As you might imagine, it did not go smoothly. Had never heard gunfire before, never heard bombs. Um, and it was a very shocking experience. The cold, the constant rain, um, and I wasn't tough. I just wasn't ready for that kind of anger, rejection, sickness. Um, I contracted glandular tuberculosis while I was there, had to be operated in a hospital. I had mononucleosis. I experienced stabbings right in front of me, bombings, gunshot wounds. It was just a, a place that I felt I shouldn't be. But when you have this illusion that you're doing the Lord's work, then you soldier on. While on this mission to Ireland, Eldon relied on letter writing and journaling as a method to cope with the horror he was experiencing on a daily basis, something he would make a ritual in his life from that point forward. Here's Eldon reading from one of his letters home to his family while overseas. This has been the worst week for bombs so far. Before this problem is over, a lot of people will die. The people are blinded by prejudice and always trying to even the score. I've seen some remarkable things lately. I guess it started with Mr. Leonard's. His brother was shot last week. Then he lost three more brothers to a gunman in the following month. Then his mother died of a broken heart. My heart breaks for him. Mr. William Kelly was a good contact, progressing well. He was blown to bits in the Rosen Crown pub. I'll miss the guy. John Lovell, 28, came to a friend's and bore his testimony about the church last night. His 16-year-old sister was killed. I can't believe the destruction I've seen lately. As his mission wore on, Eldon witnessed the terror creep closer and closer to his inner circle, until one day, it ended up on his doorstep, literally. Row housing, typical Belfast row housing. Looks like Boston, door window, door window. I come out in the morning to pick up the milk bottles. The neighbor gets shot. I rush over to assist him. I placed my thumb into the bullet hole through his jaw, and they credited me with saving his life for stopping the bleeding. The person who shot him grabbed a metal milk can, took off down the road. While he didn't know it at the time, the milk can was actually the shell casing for a bomb the shooter intended to detonate just outside the neighbor's house. 1974, June 11, Tuesday. The biggest event of the day was that I failed an attempt made by the UDA to bomb our neighbor's house. I saw them come and place the bomb. They saw me and ran. I called the RAC, went around back, armed myself with bricks, and waited their return. They retreated and placed the bomb 
on Daramore Avenue. It damaged 28 houses and destroyed two. I pray they won't try to retaliate on me. The neighbors survived the attack, and the next morning, Elton's fear of retaliation became all too real. Got up in the morning, saw the headlines in the paper, Mormon missionary saves the life of IRA leader. As it turned out, that neighbor was a ranking member of the IRA, and Elton was a good Samaritan who just stepped unwittingly into the middle of an international conflict. Yes, I foiled their plan. I did not know he was involved in that kind of business. At that point, being regimented and a full believer, I had to oppose the rules of the church, and I left Northern Ireland and went directly on the first train to Southern Ireland. My call to the president's office was, I need to leave now. I've been invited to leave the country or else. The mission president said, don't worry, God will protect you. At that point, I had already been headbutted several times and hit with a lot of rocks, and my faith of divine protection was wearing thin. That response from the mission president changed something in Eldon. He suddenly questioned whether or not God could protect him. And so that day, he made the difficult decision to end his missionary work early and return to the States. I can't speak for the world, but I think people do fool themselves and believe what they want. Um, and I had fooled myself enough to dedicate that time and energy to go and do something like that. But it helped me grow up. It helped me see the world in a different way. And it was the beginning of the end of my beliefs. One of the three or four happiest days of my life was lifting off from Belfast tarmac and going to the United States again. After his mission in Ireland, Eldon returned to California, to his family, to his future wife Janice, and the clouds parted on a dark chapter in the young man's life. When I landed, my life was once again a dream. I was able to have some notoriety in the local college football team. Came back as a borderline hero to other church members. I was offered some scholarships to play football. I got a couple of letters from Bear Bryant, who was a famous coach, and other colleges. I was the captain of the team and MVP and all those other things that go along with it, but it didn't really mean that much to me at the time. I decided that I would like to marry. I really wanted to start my own family and carve out my own little place in the world. So in 1977, Eldon married his high school sweetheart Janice, settled together in Riverside, California, 
and had their first child, Jacob. Seeing his son for the first time was the moment Eldon's priority shifted. Up to that point, Eldon had taken work whenever work presented itself. He had been employed as a mover for the church, assisting missionaries and church elders with transporting their belongings, sometimes internationally. And he picked up odd jobs in and around Southern California. But now he had a family to provide for, and that became his singular focus in life. It was a struggle because I was freelancing. There was no internet. There was no cell phone. It was a a different world. After Jacob, Eldon and Janice welcomed their first daughter, Eileen, and then Janice gave birth to another boy, Eli. But in Eli's first year on earth, tragedy struck the kid family, and Eldon's son died. I remember that my my sister-in-law sewed up a little burial suit for him, and it was, you know, he was just, he just didn't make it. Um, and I prayed, you know, that he would, would survive and I could have him, and he didn't make it. The death of their third child marked another debilitating blow to Eldon's faith. You pray, but things happen the way they're going to happen anyway, so what's the point? And I felt like I had done a body of service and I deserved to have my child live. And to this day, I have never visited the grave site in Westminster. And it's been 40 years or more. It's something that still hurts. And I know logically it should not. The upside was that my children then and my subsequent children, um, I try to treasure the time because we don't know. Will this be your last day with them? You didn't have another week. So I really still have that in my forefront and not just children, but with anyone. Everyone deserves your very best self every day that you are with them here together on the earth. With a wife and children at home, living job to job, paycheck to paycheck was a desperate affair. But soon, Eldon found something he loved, something he was good at, which also could pay the bills. Being a big fan of nature, I decided to buy a raft. I contacted a company to see if they had anything used. I picked up the raft. They invited me to be a guide with their company, Holiday River Rafting Expeditions in Utah. I went down the Grand Canyon many times, Snake River, learned how to cook and raft and row and so forth. And I kept a list of all the people who came on the trip, got their addresses with the idea that sometime I can do this myself. I just thought, this is what I want to do. I want to be a tour guide. I want to make pancakes. I want to talk nice to people and go and see different things and places and people and get paid for it. So. That spawned my idea of uh, custom adventures. It was a lot of work. Eldon would plan each trip from home using a notepad and a telephone. He'd organize everything, the accommodations, activities, transportation, meals. And once the trip was planned, Eldon would draft a pitched letter explaining the full experience 
Then, he'd mail that letter out to all of his 100-plus contacts and wait for people to RSVP. And to his surprise, a lot of them did. Custom Adventures was a perfect fit for Elton's transient personality. He was able to travel, show people a good time, and make some money while doing it. He would plan trips all over the southwestern United States, into Mexico, and the rest of Central America, with the occasional trip to an island destination. My clients were American, well-to-do, people who could afford the price of the trip and take off work for a couple of weeks. They always brought alcohol just to be free of their workaday life and hear some guitar and smell some wood smoke and eat outdoors. It was a really good experience for them and myself. In those early days, Elton discovered he was an excellent tour guide. And that meant a smooth travel experience for his clients with few hiccups. And as an unfortunate byproduct, very little actual adventure. After all, when it came to making a living as a guide, the tours were only half of the equation. The tips at the end of each trip, that's where the real money was. But the tips Eldon was bringing home after each multi-week long tour were less than what he thought he deserved. He was making it look too easy, as if anyone could guide these tours. I think it came from a trip to the Bahamas where um, the people were saying behind my back, which I heard, why is this guy even here? What is he good for? Why does he get a free trip? And it hurt my feelings. So it was on this particular trip that Eldon decided to try a new approach, one that added a sudden dose of adventure to the lives of the bored, affluent Americans he was shuttling around. Being a tour guide includes entertainment and sometimes sleight of hand. So I contacted a large, frightening guy and told him that he could make 20 bucks very quickly. He agreed. He snatched the suitcase from my strongest critic and ran around the corner. I said, don't worry, I can take care of this. I ran around the corner, gave him $20 and brought the suitcase back. At that point, I was very useful and necessary on the trip. This new strategy proved to be very effective. And when that trip came to an end, Eldon noticed a significant bump in his tips. So he decided to make his scripted heroics, shall we say, a standard part of the Custom Adventures tours. If I felt that I was not being appreciated, I would put a pinch of sand in their food and then absolutely replace it for them. Sometimes their entire backpack would be stolen and hidden, and then their backpack would appear at the end of the trip. So you have to be somewhat creative and almost set yourself up as a hero. It seemed as though in the absence of real tragedy and human suffering, Eldon had found a new way to make himself the hero. Yes, it was a little misleading, a little dishonest, but custom adventures promised an unforgettable experience. And that's exactly what Eldon was providing. He was building a reputation as a resourceful guide. Word spread and his client list kept growing. The mountains 
halfway down Baja, California, San Pedro Martir. Very remote, very interesting. And we had a van up there to see the, the uh, Nelson Brown trout and other things that are endemic. When they went for a hike, I unplugged the distributor cap wire and placed a filter of a cigarette in there so that it would not get spark. When they returned and it's almost getting dark, then they can't start the motor. As the sun set and the temperature dropped, the tourists would begin to get more and more nervous. So Eldon told them he was tired of waiting for the mechanic, whom he never called, and he popped the hood himself. That's where I come in, and that's where I make myself a hero. I take out the cigarette filter, him and haw, look around, and then suddenly, everything's going good. Relief, and then tips would follow. And scene. By this point, Custom Adventures was a solid business, but Eldon wasn't feeling much relief. Sure, he was making good money, but he was still living tour to tour. And if anything happened to his clients or the economy at large, he could lose it all. And his family was growing fast. In the span of about 10 years, I had five children. So I was really living on a shoestring. The summer season was easy to fully book doing river rafting on the local rivers. But when winter came, I had to be more creative. So I found a river called the Usamacinta, which is the border of Guatemala and Mexico. So I invented some tours there through the jungle, through the rainforest to see the ruins. The Usumancita trips were a hit, but due to the distance from the States, clients would have to fly in and out of a local airport while Eldon would take the exhausting multi-day journey from California to the border of Mexico and Guatemala and then back home with the tour van and all of the equipment in tow. And it was on that ride home after one of those tours that the trajectory of Eldon's life began to change forever. After the trip, I drove my van back with all my equipment. I stopped in Veracruz in the mountains to get out, have a taco, have a rest, and then I got back in my van and started on my way. I drove another six hours possibly, pulled over in a desert clearing, and went to sleep. At that time, I could hear a little bit of whimpering and crying and noises, and I thought that it could have been some kind of an animal. Looked in the back where my equipment was stored, and there were two teenage girls that had stowed away. The two young stowaways were clearly scared, hungry, and tired. The older girl held out her hand, and written on her palm in smudged black ink was a phone number. Eldon looked from the number back to the girl, who then spoke a single word. Ayúdanos. Help us.
this season on American Coyote. Being a coyote is a dangerous business and you have to be prepared for the worst. Eldon Kidd embarks on a 14-year journey that will take him from the heights of humanity to the depths of depravity. The poverty is bone crushing. So most of them are trying to escape hunger. They took me into the bathroom. I was on my knees in front of the toilet. And I'm thinking, my teeth are going to get broken out. This is it, this nightmare, right? I treated it like a death. And I was angry at him for putting himself in a position that would do this to the family. That's the million dollar question. Everybody would just think, why? You've been through so much. You've already been to jail. You've, you've cheated death multiple times. Why would you then assume the risk and responsibility of that career path? And here he comes in, they're carrying, they don't have a stretcher, they're just carrying him limb by limb, put him on the table. He was dead in 10 seconds. I learned a lesson. There's really no tough guys. There's guys with tattoos, there's guys with muscles, but there are no tough guys. American Coyote is created, written, and produced by Joshua Schaefer and Eli Chorus of Pegalo Pictures. Executive produced by Jason Hoke and produced by Andrew Richards of Imperative Entertainment and produced by Alvin Cowan. Original music for the series is composed by Joshua Klieb. Assistant editing by Max Drankpol. Sound recording by Nick Sinakis and Matt Stouter. Sound editing by Joshua Schaefer and Nick Sinakis. Sound design and sound mixing by Craig Platty. Poster design and graphics by Jeff Quinn. Production legal by Sean Fawcett of Raymond Legal PC and Davis Wright Tremaine, LLP. Host record by Deborah Reeves and Signature Sound in San Diego, California. Please subscribe, download, and share these episodes and follow us on social media for extra content and updates. I'm your host, Andrea Lopez Villafaña. Thanks again for listening.